what living a good life means is actually contested and fluid within changing times, place and circumstances. This calls for the disposition to act wisely, ethically and justly. Welcome to the World Worth Living In podcast, the podcast where we explore the two main purposes of education. Number one, that education can help us to live well. And number two, that it can help us to create a world worth living in for everyone. This podcast is part of a global project where researchers are listening to different groups of people, discovering how to live better and how to create a world more worth living in through education. This is a podcast produced by the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. We wish to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which we teach and learn at Monash, and we pay our deep respect to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people, one of the nations who has lived for over 60,000 years in what today is called New South Wales, where other members of our team work and live. The Wiradjuri term, Yindiamara Winangana, shared with permission from Wiradjuri elder, Uncle Stan Grant Sr., has been translated into English as the wisdom of respectfully knowing how to live well in a world worth living in. In today's World Worth Living In episode, I get to talk about education that matters with Virginia Muller. Virginia has had over 45 years experience in education, with 30 of those years in Steiner education, holding various teaching and leadership positions, including as Steiner School Principal. She has had a long involvement with Steiner Education Australia as project manager for the writing of the Australian Steiner Curriculum Framework and has been CEO of Steiner Education Australia for the past six years. Virginia is also a casual academic at Sydney University and lectures in the Masters of Educational Leadership program. In today's conversation, we discuss what it means to live life purposely and how Steiner schools can really help to focus both young people and adults on the parts of this world that really matter. Love, life, wisdom, and voice. In the chapter that Virginia has written for the World Worth Living In book, Virginia brings together two stories. Number one, the story of Steiner education. And number two, the story of her own experience of leading practices in a Steiner school. In our conversation, Virginia discusses these two stories and some of the tensions that emerged between Steiner practices of collective decision-making and her role as principal. Surfacing these tensions allowed for a new understanding of decision-making to be created in both an intentional and emergent process. Virginia talks about letting go of what ought to be and focusing in on what is, which requires a higher level of consciousness, which is both what comes from Steiner education and from Virginia's own research. We learn that a world worth living in for all is us understanding collectively our conditions in order to transform them. I would like to start us off just with a very personal sort of conversation. What, for you, does living well mean? So when you're living well, what brings you joy? What are the good bits? This is a hard question, by the way, but when I'm living life on purpose, 
I'm living well, I feel. I'm at cause, I'm not at effect. And it takes being thoughtful and vulnerable at the same time rather than being reactive. I really like being creatively responsive and over a long period of time I've come to understand that I'm living well when I'm well conscious but also when I'm connected with others but I'm not fused with others and I've learned that the hard way in my professional and personal journey. So bits of life I love are when I'm not aware of time, when I'm collaborating on oh, a new idea emerges and we can take action on that idea. I like to be all at sea in a, in a good way, particularly in the ocean I might add swimming, when I get to do things that I never thought I could do and when I'm connected with family in all its complexity. So I've got a strong inner and an outer gesture to the world. That's when... I feel I'm living well. <laughs> you said it's a tough question, but you got it. Wow. And all these different layers. And what struck me in your answer is you talk a lot about intentionality, but there's also a whole lot of sort of space there too. Like it's not rigid. There's creativity. I love the idea of waiting for something to emerge. It's just in my being. I love that. Thanks, Virginia. So we're talking about a chapter that you wrote for the World Worth Living in book and the research project that you did for that chapter. So the context of that is Steiner education or Steiner schools. And I wonder if for people who are not that familiar with Steiner education, can you just give us a little bit of a description of that? Now, that's tricky to say in um, a snapshot, but I'll try. A Steiner education fosters what we would call the human spirit in children and young adults. The education has a purpose for young people to flourish in a learning environment that's holistic. It's oriented towards moral growth and social consciousness and citizenship. And this idea of spirit, that's really strong in our education. And simply, it relates to thinking, agency, and a higher self. So Education enables spiritual development in young people to enhance their moral strength, sharpen faculties of perception to nurture each individual and connect them to the reverence and awe of the natural environment to one another and to the world around them. And the schools are grounded in working artistically, spiritually, practically and intellectually and it's intertwined. The curriculum is broadly based, it's interdisciplinary and it's culturally rich. And one difference is we cherish the right of children to childhood. And this is reflected in the staging of the Australian Steiner curriculum, which is recognised by ACARA, the Australian Curriculum and Reporting Authority. So in a nutshell, just think of three words like play, imagine, understand. And that encapsulates Steiner education. So in early learning, we nurture a child's development by facilitating, creating self-directed play because we think that the initiative, imagination and flexibility awaken underpin later academic learning and the basis for innovative thought in later life. And primary school is through artistic presentation of material, promoting engagement, inspiring deep learning and developing imagination. In secondary school, we awaken the capacity for discernment by fostering initiative and independent thinking. Play, imagine and understand. Were those the three? Yep. 
three words. Did you go to a Steiner school yourself? I didn't. No. Okay. So when, when did you get introduced to these ideas? So I was a teacher in a state system. I started my teaching career in 1978 and um, I loved teaching. But when I became a parent, my child wasn't very happy in a state school he was in. And I knew about a school starting up, Steiner School, in my area. But I was too busy with very young twins at the time to do anything. But I eventually became a parent or my child got enrolled in a Steiner School and blossomed and thrived. As a parent and as a teacher, I was bowled over by the sense of community, sense of belonging. The fact as a teacher, I saw that teachers were grappling with education for what purpose and they had a longer term view of the development of a child. And I was drawn like a moth to a flame, as a matter of fact, and so much so that I volunteered for anything that I could in the school, but then eventually resigned from the Department of Education and started working part-time at the school. And it grew from there. I became an administrator at the school. I was part of this group called the College of Teachers, got involved in the bigger movement nationally, eventually became principal of the school. And um, I also project managed the writing of the Australian Steiner Curriculum Framework. And now I'm CEO of Steiner Education Australia, which is an enormous privilege, I can tell you. And like you said, I mean, you were drawn like a moth to a flame, but it also really connects with what you talked about at the beginning in terms of your own sense of what living well is, that sense of purpose and that long-term vision, but also that holistic, really creative sense. What a journey, Virginia. <laughs> and I did my doctorate on leading practices of Steiner School principal. And that is what your chapter is based on, is it? About your doctoral research? Yes. In that chapter, you really bring in sort of two stories and they, they kind of talk to one another within the chapter. And and one is that Steiner education, just as you've been talking about, can be a force that helps us to focus on that purpose of education or what matters in education. But then that other story was your own experience or researching your own experience of leading practices in a particular Steiner school. You've already talked a little bit about this. You know, what is it that Steiner focuses us in on? You know, what are those things that really matter? What is that longer term purpose that Steiner has us focus on? I'll talk about Gert Biester for a minute. I was inspired by Biester's articulation recently of something that had been truly worrying me about the constant mantra of education for the 21st century, 21st century skills of the future. You have to build these skills for young people to survive in an uncertain future. But to me, the great challenges of our human existence and what really matters remain constant and embedded in our past and in our now. And Gert Piesta spoke about this, how we care for one another, how we care for the vulnerable, how we look after our world, how we distribute resources equitably and live together peacefully. And so what matters is focusing on an education for now. Let's stop talking about the education for the future and what matters is taking the time it takes to truly educate the child and ourselves as educators for that matter. And the driver of our educational focus should be about how human beings exist in and with the natural and social world. So an education purposefully developing in young people the agency to make a difference. 
So in so many ways that just aligns with, you know, what this project is, the, the world worth living in. You know, how do we live well with one another? How do we create that world worth living in for all? Those are the things that we're seeing that matter. But of course, the question is, what does that mean? Yeah. How do we get there? What does it look like? And within the chapter, you really focus in and even the title of the chapter is about those four, I guess they're Steiner pedagogical values that are love, life, wisdom, and voice. Those are really big concepts. Just explain a little bit about those values and what they mean, if you could. So life is a sustaining force. It really is connected with well-being, bringing learning to life imaginatively through the very strong arts focus as well of the education itself. Love is integrating the head and the heart. It's seen in warm care, relationships, community, sense of belonging and connectedness. And wisdom is how teachers teach through multimodal learning, creatively presenting their lessons and through engendering in young people multi-perspectivity. But we can see then that the integration of that love, life and wisdom needs to be enacted in relation to hope for the ecological future of our planet. And that strengthened when we know through education a new generation of young people who are empowered through that voice. And this pedagogical value supports the development of agency through the young person's understanding of the processes of life, the caring love of people, plants and animals, and wise understanding of the complex forces at work in the world at large. They've got to have a deep uh, knowledge of the world to enable them to act in it. Those are so powerful. Love, life, wisdom, and, and that hope through voice and through agency. And that does strike me as quite different from sort of the discourse that you hear in many quote-unquote mainstream schools where there is a focus on academic achievement and effective education and behavior management and those sort of things. And so the discourse seems very different. The enactment seems very different. And yet in the chapter, you talk about how Steiner schools are also not immune from some of those broader discourses. Did you see or do you see some of those outside forces influencing a Steiner education or some of the challenges of that? Yeah. I talk about the emotional load of the principle in straddling the competing tensions of both Steiner and mainstream discourses. So the discourses of accountability, compliance, standards, and the expectation of positional leaders to improve the school's performance as part of broader system demands. And the result is the intensification of principal's work in a Steiner school in straddling the ideological divide. Like an example, I suppose, that I experienced directly as a principal in a Steiner school was the struggle and tension, say, between enacting the ACARA-recognised Australian Steiner curriculum and those wonderful pedagogical values underpinning it, and the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, NESA. So Steiner schools, for instance, in New South Wales, aren't permitted to teach to the Australian Steiner curriculum framework for registration purposes. Teachers must teach to the NESA syllabuses and so they can teach the necessary syllabuses through the Steiner curriculum. We can't use it for registration purposes straight up. So this causes extra burden and pressure on Steiner teachers, I say in New South Wales, as they need to teach to the NESA outcomes, mapping to the Steiner curriculum, 
upholding the integrity of the curriculum at the same time. And the conflict that ensues can go to the core of teacher professional identity. The dissonance caused by the different curriculum paradigms cannot be overestimated. And it can cause different layers of mistrust between principals who are responsible for compliance, etc., and teachers, adding to the doubt and uncertainty about leadership. And as I say, to which my own lived experience attests. The power of policy and legislative and regulatory conditions, which principles in New South Wales, for instance, are shaped by, having turn shaped the culture, perhaps you could say, of New South Wales Steiner schools, which are unlike Steiner schools in other states, which are permitted to use the Australian Steiner curriculum framework for state registration and accountability purposes. And it takes a huge collective consciousness to remain focused on what matters. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned before how often, you know, a person within the role of the principal who is responsible for a lot of that compliance, that that can be the space where some of those tensions starts to be felt. And that's what you that kind of brings us into the second story in your chapter, which is of you in the role of a Steiner School principal. How does a principal fit into the usual structure of a Steiner School? There's different ways Steiner Schools organize themselves. Over time, I have observed that there are definitely more positional leaders in Steiner schools than there have been, and that's neither a good nor a bad thing. It just just all depends. You've got to be able to work collectively because that's in the culture of a Steiner school. It's in the DNA of Steiner schools. The challenge set by Steiner in the first Waldorf school in Stuttgart in 1919 was for teachers to take on the task of creating a new social form, uh, to work with one another in new ways which inform education itself. And the vision was to engender in young people capacities to act in freedom as adults. And the realisation of this vision depended on the teacher having a high level of self-knowledge and a strong sense of agency to work intuitively with the child before them and the issues of freedom and issues of standards and accountability were unsurprisingly as I've mentioned in key tension with the systems demands of the institution itself even in the Steiner school and you know the strength of the practice traditions is overwhelming so there's got to be a way of being able to have positional leadership and Uh, collective capacity to lead as well. It's really important for our schools to consciously work through that. That was a key finding in my research, that it is possible to have a principal in a Steiner school or similar, but you can't do it without doing it in a praxis-oriented way where there's shared understandings of what leadership is where there's shared understandings of collaborative leadership, shared understandings of the purpose of working together. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy. (laughs) And you found that. I found that, yeah. You talk about there being sort of a perfect storm brewing at one point, and a lot of that was about, you know, who was in that role of leading or how were decisions being made. Could you talk a little bit about that when you identified that there was lots of things kind of circling around? So there was a perfect storm brewing, Just as part of those complex system demands, I did 
become ever more responsible over time and accountable for decisions. Now, that was, you know, to the school board, but it was also, of course, to the ever-increasing compliance requirements from the regulatory authorities. It was clear to staff at the very beginning of my tenure in 2007, and they were relieved to be released from the burdens of compliance And they were relieved about the increased clarity of decision-making. And I was trusted and I had experiential authority. But as I saw, the understandings reached about my final decision-making authority were filtered through how the teachers were committed to the educational philosophy and the role of the College of Teachers in the Steiner School. So the perfect storm 2012 and 13 was we were so successful as a school that we wanted to double stream or put up two classes in you know in each year level there was a job share crisis that was about to hit there was an enrollment crisis there was a restructure review involving a redundancy and that nearly brought the school to its knees and it's strange but true that issues around having a principal finally surfaced with this perfect storm So teachers saw my role changing without their consultation. And in each of these episodes, whose authority it was to make decisions was questioned. And it was understandable, considering the practice traditions in my side of practice. So over time, it was the distance, increasing distance between the Steiner discourse used by teachers uh, and what they did. So this child study, their meditative practice, their inner work, the importance of rhythms, the artistic development was becoming ever more distant from management and with form filling, report writing, policy writing, standards, improvement, NAPLAN. So I was operating in, as Stephen Chemist has noted in one of his or many of his books and articles, I was operating with indifferent cultural, discursive, material, economic and social political arrangements of practice and system demands, which Steiner leaders are located and which they're subjected compared with other people in the school, such as Steiner teachers and students. And it took those crises to uncover that, you know, bring it to the surface. And once it was brought to the surface... What did you do with it? How did you walk through that storm with the others in the school? That's a very good question, and I can tell it in a linear sense, but it was very complex, and there was intention on my part to improve matters, but there was also that idea of emergence. So there was intentionality and emergence to find these conditions of possibility and what they were to bring us from you know, teetering on the edge of chaos, I found that we needed to recast an understanding of decision-making itself. And so in the aftermath of the particularly nasty crisis in administration and that restructure, I then openly questioned whether it was possible to have a principal role in a Steiner school and uphold an ethos of shared participatory leadership within democratic principles where there is that notion of power with, not power over. So with the support of a facilitator, we explicitly address the principal's job description. Now, you might find that strange, but true. In a mainstream school, I'm not sure that that may happen very much at all. But we allowed time, space and resourcing to meet together. That was another arrangement. And we met together on topics of profound difficulty. And that reached into the very essence of the education itself and 
brought that doubt about leadership to the surface. And so the amount of dialogue was sort of pretty astounding. It took about one and a half years to arrive at how we were going to go about making wise and ethical decisions in the school. We had to let go of organisational models we're expected to adhere to, both in the Steiner context and the broader educational policy accountability context as well. It sounds like you created what you needed in that time. Yeah, it was painful, very, very painful personally. And it was through the doctoral process itself that a self-transformation occurred uh, to enable transformation or possibilities of transformation of the way we worked. Very interesting process. You've taken this, what you've just described as a really painful, not just moment, but, you know, years, and you focus your research lens on it. What did you get from taking that time and using those moments in those years for your doctoral study? What made you do that and what, what did you get from that? My very thinking and my very being changed, and I know that might sound dramatic, but what I found through the deep reflection was we could let go of what ought to be and really focus in on what is and the organisational models we're expected to adhere to, as I said. And I was very much affected uh, by also the work of Professor Philip Woods, and his work on collaborative leadership. And I have been in interaction with him over deepening understandings of the way that leadership structures can be formed and fluid at the same time in response to changing conditions and the nature of collective participation, the nature of collaborative leadership. So collective participation involves a reciprocal learning relationship where we can all flourish as human beings and leadership just is. Leadership is a distributed phenomena. Leadership occurs everywhere, whether you know we know it or not. And collective participation, when we've got a shared understanding of leadership, the nature of leadership, we can see it as a reciprocal learning relationship. And we're flourishing as a human being means enabling our own and others' agency to learn and grow collaboratively. That involves a lot of work together. And we began to come to that place before I left the school in 2016. Wow. I mean, it sounds like it was, like you say, transformative personally, professionally, relationally and institutionally. Like that's, that's incredible. It was. And the way we work is such an important part of the education itself. Getting back to the love, life, wisdom and voice and our purposes of education. So I guess just to finish off and kind of pull those stories together, what did you learn from that about a world worth living in for all? What do you think that might look like? taking off from what you've been looking at in your context. It's really hard to gather it together. But one thought is that what the right thing to do is, what living a good life means, is actually contested and fluid within changing times, place and circumstances. And this calls for a higher level of consciousness and for the disposition to act wisely ethically and justly. And, you know, it's, I guess that's Aristotelian. And not acting out of fear, but out of love, not out of anxiety, but out of thoughtfulness and curiosity. And I'm indebted to Kathleen Mann 
for her work and something that's affected me in what uh, she came to and what I use a lot and think about a lot is the more we deeply know our conditions which shape our practices, the more it enables us to take action to reframe those conditions. Otherwise, we silently reinforce them. So a world worth living in for all is us understanding collectively what our conditions are in order to transform them. Thank you for listening. We hope that what you have heard sparks thoughts, conversations, and action globally and within your local communities. We can live well and help to create a world worth living in for all. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube. Just search The World Worth Living In Project.